Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, friends, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. Today, I want to take a moment and talk about that very controversial but very important topic, and that's abortion. Now, abortion is very triggering. It's triggering because it invokes feelings about your own self, your own ethical and moral compass, your religion. And it's triggering because some people who are listening to this have been through abortions. People you know have had abortions. The statistic is that one out of every four women will have an abortion. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about it. I'm going to answer some misconceptions and I'm going to share some stories because I think it's really important, no matter how you feel, to hear other people's stories and to understand the facts. And that is going to be essential in today's world and in this political world where your vote in November is going to mean more than ever. So let's dive in and start talking about this. But first, we're going to talk about this week's fertility in the news. This week's Fertility in the News is going to be that Senator Lindsey Graham, who's from South Carolina, proposed that there should be a federal abortion ban after 15 weeks. And he named this bill something really terrible. Listen to this. Protecting Pain-Capable Unborn Children from Late-Turn Abortions Act. That's the name. Now, there's so many things wrong with this. Let's just kind of break down what it is prohibits doctors from performing abortions after 15 weeks gestation, when an unborn child can feel pain, except in situations of rape, incest, or life of the mother, leaves in place any state law that's more protective of life. And now before we go any further, this bill didn't go anywhere. However, it is very telling, and I just want to break down some facts about it. One, the name is purposeful and deceiving. So it has the word late-term abortions, One, that's not a medical thing. That's not a medical thing. You don't do late-term abortions, meaning you can induce a baby to be born if it's very late. Regardless of what that terminology that means nothing is, pregnancy is 40 weeks in length, and this bill is at 15 weeks. So this is before even the middle of pregnancy. So there's no way this is late-term. Also, 93% of all abortions actually occur in the first trimester, which is before 14 weeks. 6% are going to occur between 14 to 20 weeks, and then less than 1% after 21 weeks. And of these abortions that are happening at 14 weeks and later, almost all of them are for a devastating maternal or fetal outcome. Many of these are fetal outcomes incompatible with life, which you can realize this bill totally leaves out. And this is extra tricky because the anatomy scan, when you can even detect these type of abnormalities, is between 18 to 22 weeks, because that's when the baby's big enough to detect some of these things. So this bill would force people to carry babies that have no chance of living or be born when they actually can get to a place where they can feel pain. And so that poses another fact is that the brain at 15 weeks is not developed enough to have pain receptors, 
we know that's closer to 24 weeks. So even this idea and this name of protecting pain-capable unborn children is really just to invoke emotional response for people who do not know the facts. And he's purposefully hiding them or does not know them at all. The penalty for this would be five years in jail. And it's a very extreme thing that would seriously hinder the ability of people getting appropriate health care. And another thing I think is really important here is that when Roe was overturned back in June, when it got leaked prior to that, Every Republican said the reason why this was good was that it would allow states to make laws that represent their people. Now, we can all argue about what's happening at the state level, but that was their rally cry. Hey, it doesn't really matter what you think of abortion. We're going to allow states' rights. The state gets to choose. Well, now here is King, Mr. State's rights, going and saying, I want a federal ban. So it's never been about states' rights. It's always been about control. And it's always putting people with a uterus as a second class because you should be able to decide what is best for you and your family and what you think is the most humane choice or the best choice out of really terrible decisions. So I hope that breaks down a little bit of the misconceptions I've seen going around about this bill. And so let's just talk a little bit about abortion. Officially, the medical word, abortion, it means to terminate a pregnancy, to end a pregnancy. Now, where we start getting into controversy is that a lot of things actually fall under this heading. So you can have a miscarriage. That's when your body's having a spontaneous abortion. That's what we call it medically. So naturally miscarrying, naturally ending the pregnancy, spontaneous abortion. You can have a missed miscarriage, which means the baby's heartbeat has stopped, but there's still pregnancy inside. You haven't bled. You haven't passed anything. That's considered a missed abortion. And typically the treatment for that is either medication, same pills we use for medical termination of pregnancy. So pills that make you start to bleed because they disrupt the pregnancy or a surgical procedure like a DNC, which is dilation and curatage, meaning Typically nowadays, you dilate the cervix a small amount, put a small suction catheter inside, and you suck out the placental or fetal tissue. You can also have an incomplete abortion, which is an incomplete miscarriage. When we think about this, it means you are losing the pregnancy, but it is not completed. And this can be life-threatening. Severe hemorrhage can happen with an incomplete miscarriage at any time. And sometimes there could still be a heartbeat but it's an emergency and to save your life, you might need to end the pregnancy. Typically because of the urgency in the situation, it's almost always with a medical procedure like a DNC or a DNE. A DNE is just a DNC procedure that's further along. So it just means the pregnancy is further, it's bigger. Now there's also induction of labor. So if the pregnancy is much further along, sometimes you give the same type of medications you would to induce labor. But when it's purposefully done before viability, which is typically around 23 to 24 weeks, it's an abortion. You are terminating the pregnancy, you're inducing labor when you know the baby cannot survive. And this can be done for maternal complications because mom is really sick, or it can be done for fetal indications. One of the top ones is going to be lethal or very severe fetal anomalies because typically, as we said earlier, 
those are diagnosed between 18 to 22 weeks. So those are standard for pregnancy in the uterus. And then you also have a pregnancy can be ectopic, which means it's growing typically in the fallopian tube. Those pregnancies can have heartbeats and they can need termination. I mean, they do. They 100% are non-viable. You're never going to have a baby in that position. And then what's going to happen is your fallopian tube can rupture and you can bleed internally and die. Used to be one of the top killers of people who were pregnant. And modern medicine has made that almost non-existent, meaning do ectopic pregnancies still happen? Yes. If you've been around, you know that I had one, but they are not typically lethal anymore because we can detect them early and we can treat them with a methotrexate, which is a medication for abortion. It's also used for chemotherapy and autoimmune disease and also with surgical removal, both of which end the pregnancy and constitute an abortion. And even here in Texas, I had a fertility doctor friend who could not get methotrexate for a patient who had an ectopic, meaning that pregnancy was never going to be viable, but they could not get that medication dispensed. So we are certainly seeing care impacted at multitudes of level, even for pregnancies that are non-viable or for fetuses that have no chance of surviving. The last thing to say is that when there is a life of the mother clause, this is very tricky to interpret. What constitutes as life-threatening? How sick does somebody have to get? And we are seeing hospital systems, which is where you perform abortions or just healthcare, you do surgery, you can do these procedures, are not letting people intervene until the person who is pregnant is critically ill, letting them hemorrhage, watching vital signs drop. This is dangerous and it is going to lead to an increase in maternal mortality and morbidity. And we have seen that already proven in studies. There was a study that came out looking at since SB8 was passed in Texas last year, known as the heartbeat bill, meaning from six weeks and on, you could have no intervention. And what we saw is without an increase in fetal survival, we saw an increase in maternal complications, largely from those pregnancies that were around the 18 to 22 week mark having to be spontaneously managed. A good example of why this could happen or what this may mean is imagine your water breaks at 20 weeks. Now at 20 weeks, this baby cannot survive. And that's devastating. This is something devastating that's happening. And your team would probably, if there were no abortion restrictions in place, review the options with you. Induce labor, meaning you deliver a pre-viable baby so that you can heal up or wait and see for expected management. Now, if you choose expected management, that's fine. Of course, that's fine. You're hoping for the best. But one of the big complications is you could start to get sick you can get infected. You know, a huge proportion of women in labor, just when their water has been broken for over 24 hours, can get a uterus infection. So imagine now you're sitting here trying to make it at least four weeks. The odds are that you're going to get an infection and this infection rapidly can become sepsis, which means it spreads from your uterus to your blood. It can land you in the ICU. Your uterus may have to be taken out. A hysterectomy is one of the ways to cure this. And so this is really, really scary. And if you started getting sick, you would need to end the pregnancy to save your life. And so in Texas, no longer being allowed to intervene in that pregnancy, hospitals and OBGYNs were forced to only expectantly manage patients, 
even when they were getting sick. So this is very scary. And when all your OBGYNs and your fertility doctors and your high-risk OB specialists all are unified saying the same thing, that abortion is healthcare, it's because pregnancy is not health neutral. Pregnancy is very complicated. And many of these people are in positions that nobody ever wants to be in. They are devastating outcomes faced with an impossible choice. And for us to try to use and impose religious views onto everybody and ignore what medicine is telling you, it would be like not being able to do an open heart surgery for somebody who had their coronary arteries blocked. It would just be non-fathomable in this country. And we've even heard people say, which is a really great term, this is like forcing medical malpractice because it's medical malpractice to not do something that you know can help somebody. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperature starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan, It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, 
But Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. What I want to do is read a few of your abortion stories. And here's a huge trigger warning. If you've been through an abortion, you may not want to go through some of these or hear some of these. This is really hard. And I do think if you haven't, these stories are really, really eye-opening. And I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who sent these in and who shared because you were being so open and honest and vulnerable. And thank you for letting me read your words that you took the time to write down. My husband and I were so excited to start trying for a family. I was lucky and I got pregnant after a few months. Our first appointment was normal and we were in our obvious happy bubble. During our first trimester at the 13-week ultrasound, the ultrasound tech had a hard time getting a good picture of the face, taking what seemed like a hundred still shots and me not thinking anything of it. We met with our OB right after, who told us the baby didn't have a nasal bone. I'm a PA, but I don't work in OB, but I still knew this was not good news. She advised me just wait until the labs were back and then decide further. I finally get a call three days later from a genetic counselor, and I could hear the sadness in her voice, stating my baby's at a high risk for a trisomy. If I wanted a CVS, cutoff would be really today, since I'm ending my 13th week. I leave my busy urgent care and tell my boss as I'm walking out. My husband and I drive an hour and a half to the tertiary care center and undergo the CVS. The first round of results came back three days later as normal. She said this without conviction and almost in a question tone, but I was so happy in that moment. We would have to wait another two weeks for the microarray results. No one warns you the agonizing evil of time when you're waiting for news like this. She finally calls late one afternoon. The microarray is abnormal and the placenta is at least 80% affected by trisomy 15, almost always a lethal trisomy. She gives me the details and education on mosaicism, trisomy rescue, which could lead to other severe abnormalities but may not be lethal, as well as isolated placental abnormalities. She recommends an amnio, which we have to wait another few weeks for. More agonizing time goes by. We arrive for the amnio and learn the amnion and chorion sacs are not yet fused, which is another poor sign, and it wouldn't be safe to do the amnio today. I cry in the ultrasound suite, mostly at the thought of having again to wait, to not know if my baby is healthy. A long 10 days go by and we return for the amnio. Prior to, the MFM doc does an ultrasound with measurements. Everything is so small. I'm catching the measurements and the percentages on the screen. 1%, 1%, less than 1%. The baby also has severe IUGR. We are told about 10 to 14 days for results. More days going through life like a zombie. Refusing to buy anything for the baby despite being 17 weeks. Two more weeks go by and nothing. I call. They don't know why. Everything's delayed. I'm scheduled for an anatomy scan at 20 and a half weeks. 
I finally get a call the day before my next appointment, which is almost four weeks later, saying there's a maternal cell contamination, but they think it's possible. Baby is either unaffected genetically, but with severe growth restriction due to poor placenta, or has a mosaic trisomy 15. The anatomy scan will tell us more. I remember talking to the nurse innocently, asking, how's baby doing? As she brought us back, I was holding back the tears. The scan takes a long time, more, less than 1% measurements, specifically the cerebellum. Toward the end, I see them measuring some type of blood flow. I see the blue and red coloring on the screen, but not sure what they're doing. We get taken back to a private room to go over the results. The now familiar genetic counselor said the doc will be in soon, but it won't be good news. She thinks we are looking at me birthing a stillborn in a few weeks. The doc arrives over an hour later. He's the only one there and on call and I get it. But he spends a good 45 minutes going over everything in astonishing detail. The baby is much too small, measuring at least five weeks behind. There is extremely poor blood flow from the placenta to the baby, and he predicts this will worsen over time. There is also evidence of placental apoptosis, which is dying off due to the severe trisomy 15 of the placental cells. He notes that as this happens, I'm at a high risk of elevated blood pressure and early preeclampsia. He says we can try to carry a few more weeks and scan weekly, but the baby still won't be viable at a typical viable stage due to the growth restriction, and the chances of getting to viability are close to zero. We now have to factor in the poor brain development. We could also choose termination to avoid birthing the stillborn and trying to avoid my own health complications. My husband and I had talked extensively, many times, over about what we would do in this situation. We chose termination. Not even thinking it was related to my out-of-body experience those days, I was having unilateral ankle swelling, eyelid swelling, daily migraines, and my blood pressure was elevated. I was so full of grief, I didn't even bring it up. The next week, we drove three hours to a Planned Parenthood. It's a two-day process, and we have to walk by protesters who don't know I desperately want this baby. Due to COVID, my husband can't come back with me. Day two, my blood pressures are strikingly high. The OB who volunteers at the clinic knew I was a PA and told me we can try to do the procedure, but they would prefer I go to the hospital at this point. I talk her into doing it. They continue to rise, and she admits me to the university hospital she works at. I get diagnosed with severe preeclampsia, and I end up staying three days. She rounds on me and says, if I had waited to do the termination even a few more days, I'd likely be in the ICU with acute kidney failure. I later got diagnosed with mirror syndrome. This was by far the most traumatic experience in my life. Try to tell me one more time that abortions aren't medically necessary. My heart breaks reading that, and I don't know how you feel hearing it, but I can just imagine being in that position, and I just don't even know what would happen. I mean, actually, I do know what would happen. What would happen if there was a 15-week ban here? She would have ended up very sick in the ICU and possibly would have died. That's the reality of that story. I'm going to read another one. Just like so many others, I never thought I would have an abortion. I was a pediatric resident, and I went in for my nine-week ultrasound for my second pregnancy. We were so excited. My daughter and husband were in the room, and I remember feeling so relieved when I saw the heart beating. We told our daughter that it was her little brother or sister. I noticed the ultrasound tech was quiet, though, and when I went back to work, I couldn't quell the feeling of dread. 
My OB appointment was two hours after, and now I was alone. The baby had high drops. I don't know if people who aren't OB or who aren't peds would know so instantly what that meant, but my brain translated it immediately. This baby would never be in my arms. I remember asking very emotionless clinical questions. The OB told me I would probably miscarry soon, but they would send me to MFM for follow-up. I didn't cry till I was home. I hated having to break my husband's heart, having to explain what it all meant. Just like others have said, I prayed I would miscarry. I didn't. When I went to the MFM in almost 12 weeks, the woman taking my blood pressure asked me about gender and names. My heart broke again when they told me the heart was still beating, but the high drops had significantly progressed. The baby was not even a recognizable form. I didn't even have to think about what I wanted to do. I didn't want this child to suffer, and I didn't want to suffer. In no way did I want to wait until my baby died and then have to vaginally deliver if it had been that long. I can't imagine the additional trauma of that. I wanted this child. I wanted to not be in this position, but I also wanted a DNA. I lived in Georgia. The six weeks heartbeat bill, which is now in effect, had just been signed that day, and my doctor had to confirm that she could even still proceed. We scheduled the DNA for the next day. In the office before I left, I had to listen to the mandatory lecture about fetal development and how the father of my baby had to pay childcare. The MFM gave me a trash can to throw away the packet in, and I felt sick. My baby was dying. I was choosing the best and most gentle death. And the state made the worst moment in my life almost unbearable. When it was all over, I told some people. But I never felt comfortable to share publicly because I simply was not in a place to accept anyone's opinion on my loss. I heard from a few people who believed I should have left it to God. I always have wondered, what did they want? Should I have been forced to birth a dead child? What if I'd gotten sick? Why would they have believed that pain and suffering was what God would have wanted for me or for my baby? Maybe they didn't understand as clearly as I did that this was never going to be a living child. I am still irrationally angry at the heartless opinions from people who think they understand and speak from a place of faith and righteousness. Amazingly, two months after my abortion, I became pregnant with my now beautiful son. He's the most amazing little boy. And he would not be here if I had not had an abortion. I'm sick to think that the women who live in Georgia now, who may have a story like mine, are not allowed the dignity of choosing how they want to suffer such a crushing loss or the promise that a future may be taken from them. This one is just so emotional. And I really hope listening to the words of somebody who's been through it puts in perspective that there's no good choice. It's an impossible choice, but that it's none of our business to be making it. And it's certainly not politicians' business to be regulating this choice. This terrible, excruciating moment should be between a family and their doctor, and they should be the ones to decide what happens. All right, here's another one. Here is my story. It was New Year's Eve 2021, and I had my first positive pregnancy test at 10 weeks. My OB couldn't find the heartbeat with a Doppler, so I had an ultrasound where we saw our baby and we heard the heartbeat. I felt like everything was going to be okay at this point. 
At this time, I had done genetic testing, but the lab had no conclusive results, so I went back in for another blood draw almost two weeks later. I found out the genetic testing did not have a result for a second time. When I was 13 weeks pregnant, I had multiple calls with my OB, and two days later, I had an appointment with a genetic counselor and an ultrasound and an MFM. We finally got to the ultrasound, and it was so quiet during the scan. I can remember how quickly she moved from the heartbeat, even though it was good, but it didn't matter because nothing else was. Over the next hour, the MFM doctor did two additional scans and then reviewed his findings with us. The brain, the heart, the skull, the face were all major areas of concern. They could not yet confirm, but likely club feet in her hands. There are no words when you are told your baby has a lethal fetal anomaly from an abnormal nuchal translucency, holoprosencephaly, and congenital heart defect. We learned that one of the maternity 21 tests had noise of trisomy 13. While we were advised we could wait to do further testing, but not until later in my pregnancy, and the diagnosis would not change to anything that would not be lethal. We were asked if we would consider a termination. This was something we talked about before. But honestly, we never thought this would be an issue. I was much more concerned about actually getting pregnant and not having a miscarriage. Our options at this time were to terminate either with a DNE or an induced labor, or continue the pregnancy knowing that this baby would not survive. All of these options were terrible. Termination was not that straightforward as just a decision between me, my husband, and our healthcare team. And if I wanted to have the DNE, the hospital had to approve the procedure by the department chair and the board, and all of this had to happen before 22 weeks in our state. We were also advised that additional testing could be required if the hospital team and board felt like it was needed before approving. The next day, we received confirmation that our termination was approved and it could be done on Saturday. We chose to go with the DNE route. In the week shortly after, I didn't know what to call what happened. I very much wanted to bring home our baby, but we didn't have that option. We were asked if we wanted to terminate, but no one ever said, do you want to have an abortion? But this was hard to even admit to myself at the time. There is so much stigma around the word abortion. And what I now know is termination for medical reasons, TFMR. But why? I could do nothing for my baby other than prevent them from any pain. That was the only option I had. I couldn't change my baby's chromosomes. And as the world learned of the Roe v. Wade leak, I just wanted to scream that I had an abortion. I was fortunate to be able to go to a local hospital with my healthcare team and have this done. We were treated with compassion and care along the way. And they shared how this often happens even though you feel really alone. About a month after the DNA, we received the genetic testing from her baby. An extra chromosome 13 was confirmed. Trisomy 13, and he was a boy. In addition, but unrelated, they found the baby had a balanced translocation between chromosomes 14 and 21. My husband and I had to go have our own genetic testing done, and we are fortunate that we have normal chromosomes and are not a carrier. They did express that our chance of this happening again is low, but more because it did happen the first time. Also, there's still a risk of germline mosaicism, where the sperm or egg have a mutation that's not presented in the rest of the body, 
But as of now, we're hoping this is just two spontaneous genetic occurrences. Fast forward six months. I'm now nine weeks pregnant. I am absolutely terrified that I will need the same medical care that is now no longer an option in my state. The political news since May continues to be traumatizing and triggering. There are days where I physically can do nothing, seeing what these politicians are doing and not seeing my friends and my family stand up. I've been very open about our story because people need to realize what abortion care all includes. I also did not know anyone else personally who had terminated, and I want to be there for them as they go through this. The reality for me is that if I am in the same position in my second pregnancy, my termination would not be covered at all by my insurance. I would need to travel to another state, and I'm really unclear on what type of hospital or clinic I would even be able to go to. I just want to say I'm so impressed and proud of everybody for sharing these stories that are just heartbreaking. Instead of doing For Fertility's Sake Q&A this week, I'm going to read a couple more stories. As a reminder, For Fertility's Sake is a weekly Q&A, and you can ask your questions Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, or you can call the voicemail 657-229-3672. Again, that's 657-229-3672. We are going to be doing some full episodes that are Q&A if you call and leave a voicemail, so that's a great way to get your question answered. I also want to say that your fertility doctors have been highly concerned since Roe was overturned. We are worried because abortion is health care, as you're hearing in these stories right here, but also because we know that politicians are planning to walk the line back as far as possible, and they're going to have personhood bills defining life at fertilization, which will impact your access to contraception, including IUDs, and your access to fertility treatments such as IVF. You can follow us at Doctors for Fertility on Instagram or Twitter. You can also go to doctorsforfertility.org. We would love your support. We are really working to educate, advocate, and we're ready to influence the political sphere because people need to understand reproductive care at a much higher level if they are going to be making these laws. I'm going to get back to a few other stories. My husband and I found out I was pregnant in August of 2021. I was nervous and he was calm. He assured me we would adapt to whatever came. As a physician assistant, and I'm the daughter of an OBGYN, I knew miscarriage was common, and I anxiously looked for the heartbeat on our six-week appointment. The heartbeat was there and everything looked good. We returned at 11 weeks, three days for our next scan. We saw the heartbeat again, and the tech said she could see the brain developing. I relaxed and enjoyed the rest of the scan. I didn't realize she was taking extra time and repeating a measurement because I was facing away from the screen so she could get a better view. At the end, she mentioned there was some fluid on the back of the neck and I saw a number on the screen. I went out to the waiting room until my doctor was ready and I started looking up the measurement. I was a little concerned. But once I was in the room, I heard the doctor asking if my husband was with me. The doctor came in and got right to the point. The ultrasound did not look good. She said we were most likely looking at a serious chromosome problem. She'd already scheduled us with a genetic counselor and an MFM for that week. My husband asks, what are the chances of a good outcome? Her reply was brief, not good. We got to the car and I called my dad. I told him what they saw. 
My dad practiced OB for more than 20 years. He is the most positive and optimistic person I know. When he didn't have anything hopeful to say, I knew this was bad. I called my boss next because my patients would have to be moved. He told me I should take the rest of the week off, and I felt guilty, but it ended up being the best thing for me. My husband and I had time to be together and process what was happening. We had a CVS a few days later on a Friday, and we were told the results would be ready in two business days. By Monday, I was a wreck, sitting by my phone, waiting for it to ring. We finally got a call that our results came back uninformative. The genetic counselor said she'd never seen that, and the lab was going to rush the full karyotype. An hour later, I got a call from a different genetic counselor with the results of my NIPT from the OB's office. She sounded out of breath, like she was walking outside. She quickly told us our results came back with a high chance of trisomy, and she had the baby sex if we wanted to know. It was rushed and unprofessional. Three days later, the CVS confirmed the diagnosis. With the other abnormal results on ultrasound, our baby had an 85% chance of dying before reaching term and would most likely have severe cardiovascular malformations. I've studied these malformations, and I know what these surgeries entail. I know the statistics on life expectancy. The whole week, I prayed that I would miscarry so I wouldn't have to make a choice about terminating. I didn't want to decide anything. It felt cruel that my situation was so devastating that I was hoping for something that is the worst nightmare of other people. But deep down, I knew I couldn't bring a child into the world only to have it suffer. I watched my mother suffer from chronic pain for years before she died, and I'm not going to put an infant through that. At the same time, I knew I couldn't handle being pregnant for another six months, knowing that at any moment the fetus inside me could die. My mental health was suffering. I was having suicidal ideations, and I didn't know how much more I could take without being hospitalized. We couldn't go back to my OB because the hospital she practices at is Catholic. We were referred to an academic center nearby. I cried at every stage of the process. The residents and attendings were so compassionate. I was 14 weeks when we went to the hospital for the procedure. The last thing I remember is lying on the OR table one hand covering my baby that wouldn't be there for much longer, tears streaming down my face. Many use the phrase termination for medical reasons, which describes what we went through. But medically, it was an abortion. After the overturn of Roe, my husband was so upset that he wrote an op-ed to share an experience. He said, we had an abortion. I had the procedure, but he was there with me every single step of the way, and it was a decision we made together. My husband and I had an abortion. I want people to realize that abortion is complicated. The reasons someone has an abortion are complicated. I cannot imagine living in a state where I would have been forced to carry the pregnancy to term. The government should not have a say in my medical care. Those celebrating the overturn of Roe claim to be concerned about innocent life, but the truth is, they would have forced us to watch our baby die. All right, I have one more really brave story to share. We had his name picked out years before we knew him. Becoming a mom had always been a dream of mine. He was a much-desired pregnancy after years of infertility and two prior losses. At six weeks, I started bleeding. I was diagnosed with a subchorionic hematoma, an SCH. There is no treatment for this condition. Some SCHs resolve on their own, 
but mine grew. I bled on and off for weeks, sometimes very heavily. I was monitored closely by my OBs and maternal fetal medicine specialist. The bleeding was so heavy, one afternoon I ended up in the ER. It was our 13th week. I was passing clots the size of tennis balls. After an ultrasound in the ER and more tests, I was discharged at midnight, stable but shaken. He was somehow still with us. Two nights later, I had pelvic pain. The bleeding was not too heavy, but I couldn't sleep. I was up the next morning at 5 a.m. and I texted a friend who was an L&D nurse. She advised me to contact my MFM because I was in pain. We decided to drive north to the MFM clinic about a 40-minute trek without traffic to meet my provider for an exam. She offered to squeeze us in for an appointment when the clinic opened. During the car ride, I started having contractions. I updated my MFM on the phone, and she told me to go to L&D. I walked in and greeted the receptionist. The events that follow are blurry. I was hemorrhaging. I remember my husband sitting by my side. Then I headed to the OR for an emergency DNE. I remember my OB's gentle hand comforting me on the operating table. I woke up and I was getting a blood transfusion. We left the hospital empty-handed with our hearts shattered. Desired pregnancies end in abortion. In all of this, I had a choice. No physician told me to keep bleeding for weeks until I hemorrhaged. No provider was hesitant to intervene for fear of committing a felony. The Texas abortion ban that goes into effect states there's a narrow exception to save the life of a pregnant person to prevent substantial impairment of major bodily function. Who decides when my life is threatened enough to warrant an abortion? What percentage towards death, how many liters of blood lost, and how close to dying must I be before the doctor can provide care without the threat of being charged with a felony? How much must my body deteriorate before I am treated? And what about my mental state? Are there any considerations for the trauma of carrying a high-risk pregnancy? And what if I have other children at home to care for? Case by case, hospital lawyers will review when abortions can be performed, and this is frightening. And this is damaging. The last thing you want when you're in the ER is to wait for a lawyer to decide when a physician can provide care. Women will die. For those that survive, they may face lifelong disability and damage their reproductive system, impacting their future fertility. A Duke study estimated that overturning Roe would result in a 21% increase in maternal mortality and a 33% increase for people of color. My case is just one scenario of many. Pregnancy is not a neutral state. For those that think, oh, but there is an exception for the life of the mother, that is not enough. There are countless complications that can arise, so many gray areas, which is why abortion is a decision that should be left between a provider and a patient. Abortion is health care, and the state laws criminalizing physicians for upholding their oaths to provide care are absolutely horrific. I will not stand for it. The government should not have the ability to force a person to carry a pregnancy against their will, any more than they can make a person donate a kidney to save the life of someone with kidney failure. Somewhere along the line, politicians and voters decided to elevate the status of an embryo, fetus, baby, whatever term you want to use, over the mother, treating the mother as nothing more than an incubator.
If people truly want to reduce abortions in this country, they would invest in methods and support policies proven to do so, which include comprehensive sex ed for all students, paid family leave, access to birth control, affordable housing, health care, and child care. But instead, we are forced to birth in a country that doesn't guarantee any of these. My heart's been so heavy this week. I'm grieving for these mothers that I will never know and the ones who will face unspeakable trauma and death. We will lose friends, sisters, and relatives. They will leave behind children and families. I'm also grieving with the physicians, nurses, and medical teams who've already risked their very lives during this pandemic and who are now risking their professional livelihoods as well just to care for their patients. None of this is okay. So to those who are rejoicing the Ask Godis decision, I'm begging you to see and understand how dangerous this ruling is. I am pleading with you to advocate fiercely for pregnant persons and providers. Our health and a physician's ability to practice medicine are now in the hands of voters and politicians. And I'm going to end on that. Nothing is probably more important than voting in your elections in November. This election will be monumental in deciding the care of reproductive rights and helping us set a path in this country one way or another. More than anything, your voice is important. Please make sure you are registered to vote. Please make sure that you research candidates in your area. And if you're in Texas, I will be posting even more and sharing even more coming up because our election is essential. As always, friends, I appreciate you, and please share. Using your voice is the most important thing that you can do. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman. Hey guys, welcome to the collective. I'm Brianne Halfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join the collective.